realised um, that I always ask Phil to speak in January. <laughs> it's just a thing. I didn't really do it intentionally, but it's, it's now become a thing. So, Phil, if you come on down. Um, we love to hear from Phil. We know that he is a man of God, a man that's lived this um, time and time again. You know, if we talk about encounters with Jesus, I think probably Phil, well, you have written a book. You could probably write another whole book of your encounters with Jesus. But, um, yeah, we just want to want to hear from you um, what, what God's placed in your heart. So I'm just going to pray for Phil. If we could just close our eyes, stretch out our hands towards Phil. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for Phil. We thank you for the authority he has through your Holy Spirit. And we just pray now that he, um, yeah, that through Phil, Jesus, that we would meet with you, that we would encounter you, that as we look at your word, Jesus, we see you through it. Jesus, would you lead us on? Would you lead us to you? Just feel, feel now, I pray, with your presence. Amen. Amen. I'd have fallen over there and gone on the floor. I'm not quite sure what you'd have done, actually. <laughs> so as Charles said, we're going to be looking in these encounter times at encounters. Encounters with Jesus. And this is one of the first, well, this is one of the first encounters with Jesus that's recorded in the Gospel of John. And it's, it's the first chapter of John. It's John chapter 1, verses 43 to 50. We're just going to put it up on the screen here. And it's the calling of Philip and Nathaniel, two of Jesus' first disciples. So I'm going to start just by reading this out. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip... He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. So here we have two people. Two people who are about to encounter Jesus. Who are about to encounter the call of Jesus that says, Come follow me. And all of us, not all of us are here today because at some point we heard that same call. We had that same encounter. We heard the call of Jesus saying, come, follow me. And until we hear that call, we're just people out there in the world, lost in some way or another, waiting to hear that voice, waiting to hear that call saying, come, come, follow me. And... We're going to take Philip and Nathaniel as representing two types of people. 
people we might know, people that we might encounter ourselves in our day-to-day lives. First of all, there's Philip. We know a bit about Philip. We know that Philip was one of John's disciples. So he was out there in the wilderness following John, probably joining John in baptizing people, probably joining John in that call that said, repent because the kingdom of God is near. So Philip, in some ways, doesn't look that lost, does he? He's, he's chosen to make a decision. He's given his life into following the one person he can see out there in all society around him, John the Baptist, who, who seems to have this sense that he knows something, who seems to understand what God is about, who's calling out to his generation urgently saying, you need to repent, you need to get right with God because something is about to happen. Something is happening amongst us. Something is coming and we need to be ready for it. And Philip has heard that call. He's responded to that cry of John the Baptist in the wilderness. And he said, I'm just going to leave everything else. I'm going to be part of it because I know I need something. I know there's more out there than I've got right now. I know, and we don't know what Philip's life was like before he chose to go and follow John, really. But we know that he'd said, there has to be more than this. And you may know people like Philip, people who genuinely seem to be trying to live the best life they can. They genuinely seem to be trying to do something good with their lives. You know, we think about the fruit of the Spirit, but even amongst people who aren't Christians, I know people who are trying the best to love. I know people who've got at least some kind of peace about them. They're not in the turmoil that some of my other friends are in. I know that they're showing some good characteristics in their life. Maybe they're reasonably patient. Maybe they're good. Maybe they're kind. Maybe they've got a measure of self-control about them. They might be faithful to me as a friend. I know people like that. I know people who seem to be trying their best to be the best person that they can try to be. And there are people out there who are spiritually seeking, aren't they? Some of them are kind of hovering around the edge of church. Maybe they had had some kind of background in it. Some of them are hovering around the edge of all kinds of religious or spiritual experiences that they're seeking after. But actually, they're going after it in good conscience. They're seeking after something. They just don't know what. The world is not entirely full of people who are completely and utterly depraved and away from God. The world is not entirely full of people who are completely and utterly lost. There are a lot of people out there who are doing their best to be a good person, who are doing the best to go after something. But if you were to speak to them in their quiet, private moments they would still say, I've been trying really hard. I've been seeking really hard, but I know I'm not there. I know there's got to be something more. I know that no matter how hard I try, I cannot succeed in being the person that actually I really do want to be. They know that however many spiritual things they try, however many religions they explore, however many retreats they go on, however many classes they attend, however many fairs and festivals they visit, they sense that they, there's something out there. They've got this hunger for the spiritual. But they would admit that they haven't really found it yet. And Philip, maybe, was one of those people. 
He was doing his level best to live a good life. He was doing his best to be righteous, you know, to repent and be baptized because the kingdom of God is near. He was doing his best to follow the, the best example of spirituality he could see in his generation. But somehow he knew that there was more out there. Somehow he knew that he needed more than that. He needed an encounter not just with people who were pointing him towards Jesus. He needed an encounter with Jesus himself. And then there's the other type of person. There's Nathaniel. At least with Philip, we know what he was doing with his life up until this point. With Nathaniel, we don't really know very much at all. This story's about the best we've got. But there's probably some reasons in there to assume that we've got no real evidence that Nathaniel was a follower of John. All we know, he was a friend of Philip's. We do know from some of what he's said that Nathaniel has probably experienced some low points in his life. And whilst we don't know enough to be sure from the Bible, let's take him for a moment as an example of the other kind of person we might meet, the second kind of person we might meet in our lives, the broken, the hurt, the lost, the ones who are a million miles from following God and somewhere in their spirit they've even forgotten that it was a good thing to even try the ones who are not living righteously because the siren called of the world saying, do whatever you want to do, whatever gives you pleasure, whatever you feel is your inclination, whatever your heart desires to go after, just do that. That's where fulfillment will come from. And they're off chasing wholeheartedly after all the wrong stuff and getting more and more hurt and more and more broken and more and more twisted and distorted by the things that they hope would straighten them out. The people who've been through a mess who've lost something, who've lost most, or who've lost everything, who've lost people, they've lost their hopes, they've lost their dreams. They've, every day they come in with this sense of hurt about the situation they've found in their lives. Maybe they've been harmed by others. Maybe they're self-harming because they just don't know what to do with themselves. But whatever it is, they know they're broken. They know they're lost. They don't like to admit it to themselves, and they certainly wouldn't admit it in front of their friends. But they know somewhere deep down inside, they're not even trying to do their best to live their life. Their life is just broken and it's shot and it's not worth very much at all. And if you're one of these people who's on the other end of a Samaritan's phone line, in their darkest times, they're the ones who might even give you a call. There are these two types of people out there. The ones who are trying to give it their best shot to live the good life and know they're not quite getting there and the ones who have been just trying to live whatever life they can, becoming more lost, more broken, and all they know is they don't know where they are. And to both of these people, there comes this moment, there comes this moment where they're going to encounter with Jesus. And that moment is going to change their life forever. And for those who are trying their best and not quite making it, Jesus fills them with the power to live the life that they know somewhere they have always wanted to live. And for those who are just lost and broken and miles away from Jesus and miles away from the righteous life, Jesus comes in the form of salvation that turns lives around and lifts them back and sets their feet on the rock and gives them the life they never even knew or suspected that they could have. Two types of people. And how do they come to that place of encounter? How do they come to that place of encountering Jesus? 
I've always been fascinated by that word in that scripture because Jesus calls Nathaniel and Nathaniel says, you know, how did, the, how, how did you, you know, how do we get to this point? And Jesus says to Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Now, why is that in the Bible? Why did Jesus even say that? What, what's seeing him under a fig tree got to do with anything at all? It's always kind of baffled me. And like all those baffling things in the Bible, when you meditate about it enough, it's a provocation, isn't it? It's a provocation to say, why did Jesus say that? Why, does his, why did his disciples, John in this case, think it was so important that when John himself says in his gospel, there's loads and loads that Jesus did, I've really had to condense it down. He chose to include that bit. It's not about fig trees. It's about, I saw you. Nathaniel was seen by God. And I've always had this sense that it's the seeing that mattered. Have any of you heard of a thing called The Chosen? Um, it's a box set. It's a TV series. It is a fantastic dramatization, probably the best one of our generation. And it's, it's the story of Jesus told through the lives and eyes of his disciples. Um, and because it's a dramatization, because it's it, it is fiction, but fiction that's anchored solidly in the gospel accounts. They fill in a lot of the backstories about the disciples. They fill in stuff which aligns to the biblical account but expands it a lot. So it's not the Bible, but it is brilliant. It brings out all of these human stories. And um, Holly showed me the one when I was preparing for this about Philip and Nathaniel's call. And so here's a bit of the backstory. And we're only going to show you two short clips. But Basically, Nathaniel has come to the point where he has lost almost everything. He's in that second category that I talked about. He's lost his status. He's lost his reputation. He's lost the career that he loved, that he genuinely thought was given to him by God. I don't know if any of you have ever been in that situation. And he comes to this low place where just everything has been stripped away from him. And here's the moment where Nathaniel just comes to the lowest point of all. I'll give you a clue. It's under a tree. It doesn't matter where you are. And it doesn't matter what only you know in the secret places of your lives. And it doesn't matter where your friends are. And it doesn't matter what they tell you. And it doesn't matter what they haven't told you. You are seen by God. And they are seen by God. And every life, every person, every human heart is seen by God. If you feel that you've lost everything in your life, the dreams that you had, the plans that you'd made the hopes that you thought were going to come to pass, the career that you really wanted, the relationship that you desperately hoped would work out, the person that you wanted to become, the life you wanted to live, and it's all been stripped away from you, and nobody else knows the depths of it and the pain of it, and some of those people don't even seem to care. God sees you. He does not turn his face away from you. 
every mountaintop experience that you've had, the highest heights of the best times, which you look back thinking, is that ever going to come again? And every lowest moment when all you could do was desperately drag yourself through the valley of despair. God sees you. You are seen. You are known by God. Every time that you've striven to live the righteous life that you know is good in God's eyes, every time you've sinned and you've just thrown it all away and you've just groveled to the ground in shame, God sees and God knows it. Every time you've felt called by God and you've stepped into that and you've seen the fruit of it going on in your life, And every time you've just felt cast aside and lost and fruitless and thought, where is this kingdom that you promised? God sees and he knows you inside and out. One of the names of God is God who sees, God who sees me. We all need to know that we are completely seen by God. There is nothing you can hide. There is nothing you have to hide. There is no emotion that's too much for God to deal with. There's no sin that the blood of Christ cannot just somehow technically pay off, but can sweep away, can wash you clean with the sulfuric blood of Christ, can cast as far as the east is from the west. There is no hopelessness that cannot be replaced with the hope of God. There is no brokenness that cannot be replaced with the healing reassembly that only Jesus can do. And it starts because God sees. He saw you before your parents even knew each other because he sees the beginning and the end. Even at creation, he saw you. He saw you at the moment you were formed in your mother's womb. He saw you grow completely helpless. He has seen every step of your life, every step of your life that is still to come. He sees and has seen and will see because God is beyond time. Is it as tiny to him as a little speck in our hand is to us? Every single thing God sees, he sees you. He knows you completely and still he loves you and still he calls you. Nathaniel was seen that moment under the fig tree, whatever it was. The Bible doesn't say. I think the dramatization's brilliant. But we'll never know for sure what it was. I'm going to ask him, all right? I want to know now. But we are seen. But even knowing we are seen is not enough. We still need that place of encounter. We still need to come and stand before Jesus. Nathaniel hoped beyond hope that he was seen, but in that, in that movie clip, the best he could manage was a heart's cry saying, do you see me? Do you see me? That was the best he could muster. And then a friend called Philip, good name, <laughs> comes to him. And what does he say? He says, I've found, and Nathaniel is sceptical. And he says, come and see. Come and see. The key to the place of encounter, the thing that brings us to the place of encounter, the thing that has always and forever brought anybody to the place of encounter is the invitation that says, come and see. The Holy Spirit is all over what's going amongst us today. What Charles shared, 
basically the invitations that she had brought. That is an invitation, not... It's not primarily an invitation that says come to a carol service. It's not an invitation that says come to a party. It's not really an invitation that says come to our church. It's an invitation that says come and see. It's an invitation that says come and have an encounter with the one that I have met. Come and have an encounter with the one that I know. Because nothing else is going to change you. Our commission, our calling, the great commission that we have all received... It's not primarily a call to persuade, although it's good to be persuasive. It's not a call to argue, although we should be passionate. It's not a call to reason with people, although reason is one of the many gifts that God has given us to make Christ known to people. Our call is first and foremost, primarily and always, to bring people to that place of encounter with Jesus. It's to bring people face to face, knowing that that encounter with Jesus will do the rest. That was Nathaniel's first meeting with Jesus. We're pretty sure of that from the scriptural account. Now, I don't know how many, it was a couple of years, dozens or maybe hundreds of miracles, hundreds of hours of the best teaching that this world has ever heard, when Peter finally gets it into his skull to declare, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Nathaniel does it within 30 seconds of meeting Jesus, as far as we can tell. We all get excited about Peter's declaration that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. Now, come on, let, let's have a bit of credit for Nathaniel here. He gets it within 30 seconds of that place of encounter. Now, I don't know which one you were, And I don't know which one your friends are or will be. They might be the ones who walk into a place where Jesus is seen and known and just get it. And I've met people like that. They might be ones like Peter who have to see miracle after miracle, word after word, person they trust after person they trust before they finally come to that place of making that declaration of faith for themselves. And which you are and which your friends are is not your problem. Your call is to bring them face to face with Jesus, to bring them to that place, to that moment of encounter, knowing that Jesus will do the rest because only Jesus can do the rest. There's dozens, maybe hundreds of religions out there. There's dozens, maybe hundreds of spiritual practices. There's book after book of guidance for what's a good way to live your life. And it's all human effort. And some of it has some godly wisdom underneath it. Some of it's complete tosh. But none of it can be a substitute for an encounter with Jesus. We're not looking to bring people to a religion. We're not looking to bring people to some spiritual techniques. We're not looking to bring people to good advice. We're not looking even to bring people to wisdom. We are, other than to the degree that wisdom is Jesus. Go read the Proverbs. But um, we are looking to bring people face to face to an encounter with Jesus. So where do we take people to have an encounter with Jesus? If you you read the first chapter of John, the day before these events are recorded, Jesus calls um, two of John's disciples, one of whom is Andrew, the brother of Peter, and then Andrew goes and gets Peter, so that's kind of three of them. And Andrew's first question to Jesus is, where are you staying? We want to come and see where you are. And Jesus says exactly the same words to Andrew as Philip is about to say to Nathaniel. Jesus says to Andrew, come and see. 
So Andrew comes and sees the place where Jesus is staying. He gets to know him. So question for you, where is the place where Jesus is staying today, 2024? Go on then. Yep, there's a, there's a measure to which Jesus is in heaven, and that's true. But the Bible also says that Jesus is with us. He's on the earth. So where on the earth is Jesus saying? In us. The Bible promises that Jesus will come and live with us by his Holy Spirit. He will dwell in our hearts and our lives. So if people want to encounter Jesus, they've got to go to the place where he is staying. And the place where he is staying is right here. Your job is just to clean the window enough that people can actually see. And it's that moment of truth, isn't it? Is Jesus really living within my heart or not? Because if he is, that life-changing power of encounter can start with people merely encountering me and seeing that Jesus is alive in me. And if Jesus is not living in there, they can't have that encounter, and maybe I need to get round to inviting him to live there pretty quick. Otherwise, none of this applies to me. But the first, the primary place where Jesus lives, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God in this time now in our generation is in the hearts of those who love him and have given their lives to him and have said, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. Take my life. Give me your life. Come dwell within my heart. But we live in an age that is very individualistic. So it's a bit too easy to say it's all just about Jesus living in me. And it is entirely and utterly and completely about Jesus in living me. But it is also about Jesus living in us. Jesus dwells as much in us collectively as he does in us individually. It's not either or, it's both and. Jesus completely, the fullness of Christ dwells in me. And the fullness of Christ dwells in his body, which is his people, which is the church, which is us. Fullness of Christ in both. So if you want to say, come and see, if you want to say, come and see where Jesus is staying, which is basically how all his first disciples were called, if you read this encounter, that's how people met with Jesus, then you need to invite them to see Jesus in you and Jesus among us. So we talk about bringing people to church, and of course, that is a brilliant thing to do. But bringing people to church is not leading them into a building, and it's not taking them to a meeting, both of which are good. It is bringing them to the ecclesia, which is the only real word the New Testament uses for church. And it doesn't mean building, and it doesn't mean meeting, and it doesn't mean denomination, and it doesn't mean religion. It means a bunch of people. It means Jesus dwells in you lot collectively. And they could take away your building, and they could take away Hassenbrook, and they could take away your, your written-down prayers, and they could take away your hymn books and your music, and they could take away everything else. Jesus would still be dwelling amongst us because he dwells amongst his people, his body. And that is the place. Now, isn't that incredible that actually that life-changing encounter, 30 seconds from a broken man to one who says, you are the Messiah, you are the King of Israel, rabbi, in other words, teacher, I want to be your disciple, I want to follow you, that's what Nathaniel is saying, it comes from that encounter. And today, people can have that encounter by meeting Jesus in me and in us. And that's the place we have to invite them to. And the same nudging of the spirit that was on Charles to bring people to some of the meetings we had around Christmas, I believe is God's word for us today that is saying, come and invite people to come and see. And where will they see? 
Christ in me. If that's not an encouragement to discipleship, it's not, not an encouragement to righteous living. It's that not an encouragement to live the whole of the glorious, faith-filled, power-filled, authority-filled life that Jesus desperately wants to have, that the Father wants to give you as a gift. He's just holding it out with his hands saying, this life, this incredible stuff that I promised, this incredible stuff that you read about in the Gospels, it's all yours. It's all here for you. Just receive it. Just take it from me. Just have the faith to receive and believe. That life can be ours, and that can be the life that people see when we polish off the window of our heart and they discover that Jesus is dwelling in us, and they discover that Jesus is dwelling in us in our lives and is dwelling amongst us as his people. I, don't know, I, don't know, I can't remember how many of us were at Vienna for the recent 24-7 gathering. It was brilliant. It really felt like a new season of God starting to do stuff, the same stuff again, but with a new, a new generation and a, a new season in God in that time. And Pete shared something about the launch of Pete Gregg, the founder of 24-7 Prayer, said, shared something about he'd just been in Australia for the launch of the Australian kind of branch of the movement. And he said this, Australia is seen by most sort of commentators as a secular, post-Christian Western world country only 44% of Australians would call themselves a Christian. And of that 44%, goodness knows what about 30% of them actually mean by that. Um, because no obvious evidence of it anywhere. And that's come down and down and down, year after year. But go and look again. Of those 44% of Australians would call themselves a Christian, 70% of Australians say they pray regularly. So goodness knows what the other 26% think they're praying to. But, um, you know, welcome to the postmodern world. Oh, I'm not a Christian, but I pray to God. I can live with these truths in tension. That's the reality of the generation we live among. Just deal with it. They may not see themselves as Christians, but they haven't given up on God. 25% of Australians say that if somebody invited them to church, they would probably go. 25%. That's one in four. That means if you asked four of your friends to come and see, one of them would probably say yes. If you asked 20 of your friends to come and see, five of them would probably say yes. I'm good at maths. If you asked 50 of your friends to come and see, you'd have a, you'd have a house church all on your own. I don't know how long that would take, sort of 10 minutes each. 500, what's that? Is it a few? You'd do it in a day, couldn't you, if you worked really hard at it? And yet 80% of churches in Australia, and these are Australian numbers, but actually the, the picture is basically the same in most of the Western world, most of the English-speaking world at least. 80% of Australian churches are planning on the basis that they will not grow, that they will not see new people coming to Jesus in whatever planning horizon they're working to. So the major problem is not that people aren't seeking God. And the major problem is not that when you tell people to come and see, they won't come. The major problem is the church has lost its faith and is planning on decline because it doesn't believe that the gospel is actually good news and doesn't believe that people will respond to it. We need to be the people who will invite this generation to come and see. We need to be the people who will invite this generation to come and have an encounter with Jesus for themselves. We need to be the people 
who will invite the Phillips and the Nathaniels who surround us. We need to people, people who will go to those people who are trying really hard to live a good life, who are doing their level best to do and be the kind of person that actually the Bible says is good and is right. We need to be the people who will go and call these people who are seeking spiritual stuff in good conscience, even though it's not bearing much fruit for them in their lives, and say, come and see. Come and have an encounter with Jesus. And where are you going to find him? You're going to find him in me as I tell you my story of my encounter with Jesus and what it's done in my life. And you're going to find it amongst us. You're going to find it amongst my mates. You're going to find it amongst my friends. You're going to find it in my house church. You're going to find it amongst these brilliant, broken, crazy people who I call my brothers and sisters in Jesus. Because he lives in all of them too. And he lives amongst us collectively. And we need to be saying, come and see to the Nathaniels, the ones in the 56% who wouldn't call themselves Christians. But in their darkest moment under that stupid tree, they're still praying. And when their friend Philip comes to them, personal challenge alert, and says, come and see, even though they're sceptical, and even though their first response is, Nazareth, what good can come out of Nazareth? Grudgingly, they come, and they have an encounter that is utterly life-changing with Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus amongst them. And Jesus is still amongst them. He's amongst them in me. He's amongst them in you. He's amongst them in us. Are we ready to be the people who will share to our generation the good news that they are seen by God, no matter where they are? And are we willing to be the people who will extend the invitation, come and see, come and meet, come and know the one who lives in me and lives in us? Amen. Amen.